And when Jesus had healed the 10 leopards, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Our Father, we just want to pause and give thanks this morning. You said a nation that is being forsaken is a nation that refuses to give you thanks and praise. And we know that sadly the majority of Americans are not in church anymore as they once were. They are refusing to give thanks and praise, like the nine lepers. But as your people, may we be filled with gratitude. You said this is your will for us in Christ Jesus that we give thanks in all circumstances. We think of the people in the Bahamas, the thousands this morning that they say are missing, the smell of death filling the land, so many heartbroken, yet a nation covered over in superstition and all kinds of evil. May you use this for their good. And may it be a reminder to us that we are not more righteous than they, that judgments that come in this world, natural disasters that come because we live in a fallen world, like the Tower of Siloam that fell on 18, and the wicked things that Pilate did to the Jews, that that does not make us more righteous than they. You said that these are to be reminders to us of impending judgment, that unless we repent, we likewise will perish. And help us, our Holy Father, this week to be faithful stewards of the gospel, to share it with people, to look for opportunities, to pray for open doors and clarity, to speak the good news. But we just want to pause and thank you for sparing South Carolina, for being so kind to us, for we do not deserve it. And we are grateful to you. We come in a sense of humility today, like the psalmist who said he trembled at your word. May we recognize that the books that are in our laps represent your very holy, inspired, God-breathed word. So please give us ears to hear, to pay attention. As you, the greatest in all of the universe, the only true God. May we hear what you have to say to speak to each of us. Help me, Father, come fill me. Use the message as it's heard today and will be heard later on, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word this morning, would you? John chapter 6, the same one who gave us the revelation that we've been studying now for a few years, the same one who gave us 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, who also gave us here the gospel of John. And unlike any of the other gospels, the apostle John 
does not give like a running video camera approach to the life of Christ, but he takes various snapshots out of the Lord's life. And as you open this gospel, it's apparent even in the opening chapter how different it is. There's no genealogy, there's no manger scene, there's no boyhood, there's no temptation, no transfiguration, no traditional Last Supper, no prayer in Gethsemane, there's no scribes, there's no lepers, there's no publicans, there's no demoniacs, there's not even a single parable. And so the traditional accounts of Christ's baptism, of his temptation, and of the multiplicity of miracles that he does that are recorded in the synoptic gospels and are not recorded in this gospel. There are 37 miracles done in the life of Christ, excluding the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the ascension that would make it 40, but 37 done during his public ministry, but only seven are recorded in John's gospel, five that are unique to his gospel, two that are shared in the other gospels as well. And of the seven that he selects, he selects for a very important reason and message. And so while the other gospels major on describing the events in the Lord's life, John, more than any other writer, describes the meaning of the events. And so take, for instance, it happens in this chapter as it's recorded, the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 heads of household, excluding women and children. So 20,000 people, let's say, were miraculously fed that day. But only John follows it with a sermon, with a discourse, and he gives the meaning behind the miracle. Only John uses extended discourses. Only John gives some unique encounters, like with Nicodemus, like with the woman at the well, like the father of the sick son, like the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In addition, we find these messages in John's gospel that we find nowhere else. The upper room discourse, unique to John's gospel. The high priestly prayer, unique to John's gospel. Now, unfortunately, sometimes Bible scholars try to make a harmony of the gospels. And I have a few books in my library that are harmonies of the gospel. Harmony is when you take all gospel accounts and you try to put them together in one chronological stream. And I know they think they're doing God's people a service, but for the most part, they're really not. Number one, God wrote four Gospels, and He wrote them for a reason. If anything, we need a disharmony. Now, by disharmony, I do not believe or mean that there is any contradictions in the Bible, for there are none. There's not a single error anywhere in the Word of God. But the fact is, is that the Spirit of God chose to give us four Gospels because He is writing to four specific groups of people. So take Matthew's Gospel. He's writing to the religious man, to the Jewish man of his day. And in it, he proves that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He begins with a genealogy that starts with the progenitor of the Hebrew nation, Abraham, and carries it all the way down to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows that it's not enough to be religious, that you need a relationship with the living God. Matthew, who writes it, who is a tax collector, was a religious man, but he was lost until he met the living Savior. You could put, I suppose, over Matthew's gospel, behold your king, because he shows that Jesus is indeed the king of Israel. Mark's gospel is not written to the religious man, but to the strong man. The audience is Roman, 
And the Romans, of course, were a strong people. They aspired to leadership and admired great leaders. And so for some 450 years when the empire was in existence, they were ruled by Caesars, many of whom claim to be God. And so in this really brief, blunt, pithy kind of style that Mark uses, he presents the Lord Jesus as the strong man. But beyond conventional wisdom of his day, he also presents him as the servant man, that he is a servant leader. And I suppose the key verse in the whole gospel of Mark is, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he writes for busy people, for people who aspire and admire power and action, and he shows that Jesus is the servant of Jehovah. When you come to Luke's gospel, Luke is a physician. He writes to the intellectual man, to the thinking man of the day. He uses the highest form of Greek found in any book in all of the Bible. The vocabulary that he uses is absolutely incredible. And of course, he demonstrates, unlike the Greeks of the day who admired Plato and Aristotle and Homer and Sophocles and Euripides and all these people where they tried to present a perfect man, a man they never found, Luke shows that Jesus is the perfect man. Even the Greeks, unsure who the perfect man would be there on Mars Hill, had an emblem to an unknown God hoping that someday they would find this man. And Luke shows that Jesus is indeed the perfect man. He is the servant of Jehovah. And so he traces the Lord Jesus, unlike Matthew who begins with Abraham, he takes him all the way back to Adam and shows Christ as the perfect man. Now, when you come to John's gospel, again, it's markedly different. He is writing to the skeptical man, or you might say to the searching man. He tells us in his gospel that he has an evangelistic purpose. Listen to these words, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that believing you might have life in his name. And then at the end of the gospel of John, he adds that of all the things that Jesus did, and if they were all explained, he said even the world could not contain the books which were written. And so John selectively proves that Jesus is God, but he also does it in a way to show that he is human. He presents to us the God-man. You could put over this gospel, behold, the God-man. Over Matthew, behold, the religious man. Over Mark, behold, the strong man. Over Luke, behold, the intellectual man, the perfect man. But over John, the God-man. And so for the person who is searching and looking, more people have been converted, people say, and I believe it with my heart just by experience and from everything I've witnessed in my life, more people have been converted reading the gospel of John and hearing it preached than any other book in all of the Bible. But it's written not just 
with an evangelistic purpose in mind. It's written to believers, that believing you might have life in His name, real life, the abundant life that Jesus promised in this gospel. Now, let me set the context. First, the big picture of the gospel of John. If you read it over several times, you will see there are three major divisions to this book. It begins in chapters 1 through 12 with the signs of the Son of God, the signs of God's Son. And again, seven miracles are selected to show that Jesus is Lord. And he wants us to carefully consider these miracles and the meaning of the miracles. So one, if you're lost, you might be saved. And two, if you're saved, that you might grow in your relationship with the Lord. Those chapters, chapters 1 through 12, take place over the course of just a few years. Then when you come to chapters 13 through 17, the theme is the secrets of God's Son. I suppose you could say this section is for believers only, because he's not addressing the multitudes, only his men, those closest to his heart. And of course, it's here that we find the upper room discourse unique to John's gospel and the high priestly prayer that he gives before he arrives in Gethsemane. All that takes place in those chapters is done over the course of a few hours. Then you come to the third section. The first section, if anything, points on how to establish a relationship with God. The second section on how to grow in a relationship with God. But the third section, chapters 18 through 21, the theme is different. It deals with the supremacy of God's Son, and it details the passion, the crucifixion of Christ. His resurrection, like no other writer in His uh, glorious ascension into heaven. And so, again, seven miracles, five that are unique. Now, many of you know that there are different words in the New Testament that are translated to describe a miracle. There's the um, word dunamis in Greek. We get our word dynamite from it. And when God wants to emphasize the power behind a miracle, he uses the word dunamis. Then there's the word teras that is usually translated as wonder. And the emphasis behind that word for a miracle is the awe, the the inspiration, the wonder that the miracle produces when people see it. But then there's a third word that John repeatedly uses all the way through his gospel, and it's the Greek word samion. It's translated sign. And if you're using the New American Standard with cross-references, it's often footnoted, and you go out into the margin, and it says, an attesting miracle. That is, it's a miracle that attests to something. It is a miracle with a message. And so the miracles that he has, he wants to underscore that there's a message behind them. Now, here we are at the fifth miracle that John records when Jesus walks on water. And as we read this this morning, you want to ask yourself, what is the meaning behind this miracle? What does God want to say to me? I hope you're listening because God has something to say to you. Listen, if the president of the United States wrote you a letter... You'd pour over it, you'd read every single word, you'd read it and reread it. You have in your laps the word of Almighty God. The God of the universe wrote this book. It's the only book on the planet he wrote. 
And we want to pay close attention to it this morning. I want to begin by reading our text. We're going to look at just verses 16 through 21. Follow along. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, it is not I, do not be, it is, excuse me, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, if you remember the immediate context of this paragraph, in the first part of the chapter, in verses 1 through 14, he does the miracle of what we call the feeding of the 5,000, or better, we might say the 20,000, 5,000 heads of household. And prior to this miracle, as you read all four Gospels, Jesus has been teaching them, he's been healing them, he's been casting out demons, dealing with a number of different physical needs and illnesses throughout the day. He's been teaching them, addressing to their spiritual needs, but then he addresses their hunger needs. And so he feeds them with five loaves and two fish. Now, the crowds, of course, were clamoring after him because of all that he had said and done that day. They had seen his miracles. They had heard him preach. They had seen his omnipotent power as he fed some 20,000 people. And what's their conclusion? It's given to us in verse 16. This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. The people assess that this one is the prophet who is to come into the world. If you're using the old New American Standard, the 1978 edition, it says, it's a little wooden, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. This is of a truth, and that's really wooden, but it causes you to be reflective. What truth is he referring to? A truth that Moses underscored in the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me read it to you. The Lord your God, Moses wrote, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And then God said through Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses writes of this prophet who in some way mimics Moses. He is a leader who delivers the people out of slavery. Jesus is going to deliver the people out of a slavery of sin. And God warns the people, that if you fail to listen to this one who's coming, this unique prophet of God, then you'll have to face the living God. And it's a truth that echoes all the way through the Scriptures that what you do with Jesus will determine in the end what God will do with you. You receive Him, you will be eternally forgiven, you'll become a new creature, you'll be born from above, you'll have a new life. You reject Him or ignore Him or curse Him, you'll spend an eternity wishing you had not. 
So Peter and others understood Jesus to be that. You say, well, you're reading into it that, that this prophet that Moses wrote about is Jesus. No, the best interpreter is Scripture itself. And Peter, when he stands up on the day of Pentecost, says Jesus fulfilled this. Read Acts 3, 19 to 24. He quotes Moses in the Deuteronomy 18 passage. Verse 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to a mountain alone. The people's assessment is that the prophet Moses wrote about is the Lord Jesus himself. And they thought, of course, that the role of Jesus should be as of a king. Now, the Bible teaches that there would be three offices that the Messiah would fill, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so if Jesus is the prophet, then he is also the king. And indeed, if he's like Moses, who overpowered Egypt and delivered the people, then Jesus must be the one who is going to overpower Rome and put Israel on top and crush the Roman people were there once again in charge. And since that day, Luke tells us Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God. They put two and two together, and they think, yes, Jesus is the one we need. But you see, their motivations are purely secular, they are material, but they are not spiritual. Christ came to bring you into a relationship with himself. Yes, a day will come at his second coming when he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But Jesus told Nicodemus, before that can happen, the Messiah must die as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross, for God so loved the world he gave his only Son. The Messiah must first die, be buried, and raised from the dead, that you and I might be born again. And let me say, unless you are born again, Jesus said, you will never see the inside of the kingdom of God. But Jesus wants them to realize that his kingdom is like no other. Is that not what he said to Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he is going to get away from the crowd because he understands their evil motives. And two, he wants to get his disciples away from the crowd. Listen, these men would have gladly embraced what the crowd wanted. You want Jesus as king? Great, because we're his apostles. We're going to play a unique role in that kingdom. And of course, right up to the end, they're in discussion, not fully understanding the purposes of Jesus as to who is going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. But you see, these people just wanted what Jesus could do for them. They had their own selfish motives. They didn't really want to yield to him. Remember, this is at a time in Israel's history where the nation is filled with immorality. It is filled with idolatry and wickedness, and they had forgotten and forsaken God. Now, there was another time earlier in Israel's history where the spiritual atmosphere was virtually identical. I was reading this week about the time when Eli was the priest. And if you remember, he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they too were priests, but they were wicked men serving their own selfish purposes. And so when the people of Israel went out against the Philistines, I mean, they were beaten black and blue. They lost 4,000 men that day. And so they concluded they lost because God was not with them. 
And they wanted God with them, not so they could repent of their sin, but so that they could be victorious in battle. And so listen to what we read from 1 Samuel 4. They conclude we need the Ark of the Covenant, the sign and symbol of God's presence, with us when we go into battle. And it happened. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, that all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so the people with a sense of confidence, with the Ark of the Covenant, which they view simply as a good luck charm, they go out into battle and 30,000 Israeli soldiers are slaughtered. You see, they just wanted to use God for their purposes. But God would not be used in that day or in Jesus' day or in this day. And people have not changed. What these people do in John chapter 6 when he feeds 20,000, what happens? They all forsake him. And finally, there's just a dozen men left. And they say, are you going to leave too? And we sang it this morning. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They wanted Jesus for what he could do for them. And that's the way it is today. You've got all these guys on TV, a Stephen Furtick. You've got a Joel Olstein. You've got all these tele-evangelists who are telling you you need God to make you feel good, to get you out of a jam, to make you healthy, to make you wealthy, to make you prosperous. But they leave out repentance in leading and yielding to Jesus as Lord. And Christ does not commit himself to any human until he hears the cry of repentance where someone comes and embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, let me just say, lest we be too smug as evangelical Christians who make sometimes mockery of our Pentecostal friends in their twisted theology, Not all Pentecostals, but many, of course. When things are going well, when we've got a good job, when the kids are healthy, when there's no problems, maybe we're not all that close to God. But, oh, just let there be a heartache in the family. You get the prognosis, you have cancer. You get the prognosis that you have a disease that no one can cure. Your business is falling apart at the seams. Your children are running into wickedness. And then, oh, man, you're reading the Bible. You're in prayer. You're seeking God. But then when everything's fixed, our hearts are far away. And so God wants to put some demands on our life to walk in the good times and in the bad times. 
And that's one of the things that this text of Scripture is going to do for us. So knowing their desires, that they just want Jesus for what he can do to make him their king and to overthrow Rome, he puts the disciples into a boat, and the Bible says he goes alone to a mountain to pray. Now, with that said, there are three aspects to this boat ride that I want to underscore in your thinking this morning. The first concerns the tempest that overtook them, the tempest that overtook them. Beginning now in verses 16 and 17, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, sending the disciples into the boat did two things. First, it got them away from this fanatical crowd, and it also got Jesus away from this crowd that wanted to make him king. And so, what's very interesting here is that this boat ride that is going to result in an incredible storm on the Sea of Galilee was part of God's will for them. Uh, it's interesting. You might want to put out on the margin next to these two verses, Mark 6, 45 and 46. Mark 6, 45 and 46. Let me read the par parallel account. And immediately, when these people want to make Jesus king, he made, he compelled, he constrained, he ordered, you could translate it different ways, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethesda. Now, let me just say, this is one of the favorite verses. You know, there are people who talk about not the inerrancy of the Bible, but the errancy of the Bible. And if this is a subject you want to study, I have a course on bibliology where we go through alleged discrepancies in the Bible. There are people who want to attack God's Word. Satan has not changed since the beginning. Did God really say? He wants to try to convince you that the Word of God is not true, and they'll say this is an apparent contradiction. They're in Bethesda, and they're going to Bethesda. Oh, but wait a minute. John's gospel says when they get in the boat, Jesus is going to send them to Capernaum. Wait a minute. Matthew and Mark record that he's going to send them to Gennesaret. They land in Gennesaret. Two accounts say they land in Gennesaret. One says that they're going to Bethesda. The other says that he's sending them to Capernaum. Which is it? Well, there's two Bethesdas, just like there's two Bethlehems in the Bible. There are two Caesareas in the Bible. There are two Antiochs in the Bible, two Bethlehems in the Bible, and there's two Bethesdas in the Bible. So here they are in Bethesda on the eastern side of the sea where the miracle takes place. Luke tells us the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Bethesda on the other side of the sea. Then Jesus is going to send them across the sea to Bethesda. And so John will later, lest there be any discrepancy in people's minds who would come along much later, delineates that the disciples were from Bethesda of Galilee. That is this place on the side of the sea that's in the county of Gennesaret that is adjacent right to Jesus' hometown called Capernaum. If you go to this place where Jesus is sending them today, it's called Bethesda, we call today Tabgah. Uh, Tabga is an Aramaic word for seven springs. There are seven warm springs that were in this place, which even in the winter months made it good for fishing. 
And this is where the disciples, Andrew and Philip and Peter, were from, this little fishing town called Bethesda. And about a quarter of a mile away, just down the street, so to speak, if you walked along the shore, you'd come to Capernaum, which is Jesus' hometown. If you remember, he is rejected in Nazareth, and so he has a new hometown that becomes headquarters for his three-year-plus ministry, and it's Capernaum. So they're in Bethesda, and Jesus sends them to Bethesda. But since they're adjacent to each other, you could say that he's sending them to Capernaum. Well, someone asked me last week, where do you live? I said, well, I live in Beaufort. I don't really live in Beaufort. I live in Seabrook, which is close to Beaufort. I'm going home to Beaufort. That communicated to them. So they're in this county. It's called the country of Gennesaret. There's also a city. But they're in the, it's kind of like Beaufort. There's Beaufort County and Beaufort within Beaufort County, right? And so they're in Bethesda. He's sending them to Bethesda or Capernaum, same place. They're just adjacent right to each other. In fact, it's a straight line across the sea. You can see both places at once to the county of Gennesaret. With that sideline, let me keep reading. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethesda. While he himself was sending the multitude away, he departed to the mountain to pray. So Mark gives us the reason for Jesus not accompanying his disciples. He's sending them across the sea, and he is going to the mountain to pray. They get in a boat. They go to the other side. No argument, no questioning, just unfeigned obedience. It's a mark of a disciple in John 8. If you're truly my disciples, you'll abide in my word. It's not why God, it's yes, God. It's not I don't understand, it's what do you want, I'll do it. And so Jesus commands them, and they obey. Now look what happens, verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now the Sea of Galilee, it's not a sea like we would think of it. It's fresh water. In the Bible, as in other cultures, the word sea can mean different things in different contexts. In the West, when we use the word sea, we usually think salt water. So many people go to the Sea of Galilee and they're surprised. They think it's salt water. No, it's a fresh water. It's a big lake. It's also called in the Bible the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias or uh, the, uh, the, the Sea of Kinnereth, different names. But it's 682 feet below sea level. And around the sea, there are mountains that are about 300 feet above the water level. And what this does is when cool air comes from the southeastern gorges and rushes into that sea, it creates this storm. You feel it many times here on the coast. All of a sudden, it's kind of warm, and then you feel this cool breeze coming, and the temperature's dropping, and before you know it, you're you're in the midst of a thunderstorm. Well, they were in the midst of a storm, and suddenly, it went from a calm sea, remember, it's in the middle of the night, into an incredibly rough sea. John says a strong wind was blowing. Mark writes the wind was against them. Matthew records the boat was battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. And we also learn from Matthew's gospel that it was during the fourth watch, that is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that they had been straining at the oars for approximately six hours when the Lord Jesus comes to them. Now, that's the tempest that overtook them. Secondly, I want us to consider the terror that overwhelmed them, the terror that overwhelmed them. We read now, beginning in verse 19, then 
when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, remember, they're in Bethesda on the upper uh, northeast quadrant of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to Capernaum or Bethsaida, and it's a distance of about seven to eight miles. And so they're in the midst of the sea. John marks it also by the numbers that he uses as being there in the middle. And so they're in the middle of the sea, halfway, fighting the wind, fighting the waves, and Jesus comes. Now, it's interesting because it says Jesus comes walking on the sea. You know there are people who love to attack the Word of God. Why do they love to attack the Bible? Because if the Bible is true, it has tremendous implications on our life. If homosexuality is a wickedness, if committing extramarital sex is a depraved thing to do, if having sex before marriage is evil, if getting high and buzzed and drunk on alcohol is wrong, it has great implications. And if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him, it has tremendous implications. So what do you do? You attack the credibility of the book so that you can discount it in your mind even though your heart says it's true. So what do the liberal scholars do? They say, well, Jesus was walking on the sea, and the word on here is the Greek word epi. And it is true that the word epi can mean alongside of or by the sea. Words sometimes get their meaning in their context. When I use the word trunk, do I mean what's behind a car, what's at the base of a tree, what's out in front of an elephant or over a sailor's shoulder? All depends on the context. There are some Greek words that always mean the same thing in every context. However, the word preposition epi can mean by or along or literally on. When you come to John 21, Jesus is epi, he's along the seashore, same word. What does it mean here? Well, the liberal scholars say that Jesus is not literally walking on the water. Just from the disciples' perspective, it looks like he's on the water, but he's just in a few inches, he's along the seashore. Well, John discounts that, as Matthew does. He's in the midst of the sea. They've gone about three and a half or four miles. He's right in the center of the sea. It's pitch black. A storm is going on. And by the way, let me just pause here because some of you have commented to me that you like the works of William Barclay, and you've asked me what I think, and I'll tell you in advance, I don't like the works of William Barclay. He was a liberal commentator, and yet he sold in Christian bookstores across the country. He says that Jesus was not walking on the water, but along the shore. By the way, he's the same one in his commentary in the Gospel of Mark who said that Jesus didn't literally feed 5,000, that is 20,000 people. But what he did is he encouraged this young lad with the fish and the bread that he had, and through his encouragement, everybody else who'd been hiding their food said, we won't be selfish either, and everybody had a good meal. He's the same liberal lost commentator, I hope he repented before he died, who said that Jesus did not literally cast the demons into the swine where they 
went into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. He's the same commentator who denied, found repulsive the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on a cross. He denigrates the supernatural. So I don't appreciate that. Why do I read him? So I can know what the liberals are thinking, so I can help you, our college students, when you sit in some classroom and some professor gives you some argument to discredit the Holy Scripture in your thinking. No, Jesus is in the middle of the sea. He is literally walking on the water. Remember, John calls this a sign, and he's giving us these signs that we might believe Jesus is the Christ and believing we might find life in his name. Now, put out in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 14, 26, let me read it to you. Again, the wind is howling, the the waves are heaving up and down. Uh, Jesus is walking up one wave and down another. They see him, he's gone. And, And we read, when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. John succinctly says they were frightened. The word here for fear is phobos. We get our word phobia. And it's a word that speaks of terror. Have you ever had a dream at night where something happens so fearful and you want to act, but you can't? You're just like kind of paralyzed in your dream. Have you ever had that dream? Is that just me? No, there's a few other people who have had those. Okay. Well, listen, they are paralyzed by fear. They think this is a ghost. This is a phantom. This is the boogeyman coming at them like a bad dream. So that's the terror that overwhelmed them. Third, I want us to think about the tenderness, the tenderness that overshadowed them. There's the tempest that overtook them, the terror that overwhelmed them, but there's the tenderness that overshadowed them. We read now beginning in verse 20, but he, Jesus, said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, Jesus had not abandoned them. He was watching them. What they were going through was part of the will of God for their life. He was the one who, by the sheer force of his character, sent the multitudes away and then commanded these disciples to get into the boat, and they chose to get in this boat. And when you are in the will of God, and this was part of God's will for their life, they're obeying a command of the Lord Jesus Everything works together for a purpose. Romans 8.28 is one of the top 100 verses every believer should have memorized. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Not those who are called. It looks like a verb in the NAS. It's actually a noun. To those who are the called according to His purpose, as the King James literally renders it. He's speaking about a particular group of people. Unsaved people all the time say, well, you know, everything has a purpose. Everything kind of works out. Not true, necessarily, unless God is drawing that person into the kingdom. The promise that everything works together for good, not that everything that happens to you is good. That's not what the verse says. But that God works out everything that happens to you for your good. For what purpose? To make you like Jesus, that we might be conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, as the text will go on to explain. He has a purpose, and it's with a means to an end. And here there's a means to an end. He wants to strengthen the faith of these disciples. Again, read verse 21 carefully. So they were willing. You might want to circle that word willing. They were willing 
to receive him into the boat. Underscore willing. God never does anything where he violates your human will. He never forces himself on us. These disciples were glad to have the Lord Jesus on board, and yet here are these men who are willing to receive him when so many in this world are unwilling to receive him. I don't know how unbelievers go through the storms and trials of life without a relationship with the living God. I wouldn't want to be them. But people do it all the time. They just live being their own king, doing their own will, trying to accomplish their own purposes. And then John adds something astonishing. It's another miracle within a miracle. Notice, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, that statement, unfortunately, is watered down in a paraphrased version called The Message. Eugene Peterson created a translation that did no good to evangelicals. He distorted many verses of Scripture, wrote out homosexuality out of many verses in his translation, but he waters down this verse to say, in no time they reached the land. The idea behind that rendering is that Jesus is on board, and they're so absorbed with his presence, it's just like the time flew by, and the next thing you know, they're on land. But that's not what the Greek New Testament teaches, nor what your English text literally renders here. Immediately, you could render it instantaneously. The boat was at the land to which they were going. A second miracle took place where the Lord Jesus annihilated distance and he abolished time just like he superseded the laws of nature which he created when with the Father, with the Spirit, he created the world where you could walk on a liquid like it was a solid. Here he suspends the laws of space and time and immediately, instantaneously, they're on the other side. And how appropriately, he had been watching them struggle for hours. Why make them struggle anymore? Just like Philip was immediately transported from one place to another in Acts 8, they are immediately, the whole boat and everyone on it, they're on the other side. Now remember, he uses the word semion, sign. This is a miracle with a message. And again, John will write at the end of this gospel, therefore many other signs attesting miracles Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that believing you may find life in his name. So you want to ask, as I want to ask for myself, what message is behind this miracle? Why did he record this for us? What does he want us to understand from it? Well, I want to emphasize five anchors, five truths, five assurances that when you find yourself in one of the storms of life, you can claim from this section of Scripture. Number one, he brought me into the storm. When you are in some trial, and some of you this morning, it's smooth sailing. You're not in a trial and everything's just fine. But sooner or later, you'll be in a trial. They are coming, and I believe it's one of the reasons God can... I had other plans for this morning, but God compelled me, no, this is what I need to do. 
And so Jesus, when you are in a trial, in the providence of God, because he works all things together for good, he brings you into that storm. He brought you into the storm. Remember, Matthew 14, 22 says, he compelled them, he constrained them, another translation said. Our text in John says, he made the disciples get into the boat. They're in a storm. It's frightening. But they're in the will of God. They're not out of the will of God. They're right in the center of God's will. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, it is true that some of the storms of life that we face, we bring on ourselves. Jonah is a classic example. Jonah is in a literal storm, in a literal great fish, because of his disobedience. God said, go this way, and he goes the opposite way. Go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite way. And so there are storms of correction that come into the believer's life because we are out of God's will. These men are right in the center of God's will. This is not a storm of correction. This is a storm of perfection. This is a storm to make them greater and stronger in their faith that they might walk closely with the Lord Now, once before, Jesus tested them when he was in the boat. And if you remember, there was an incredible storm, and these are experienced, you know, fishermen who lived their lives on the Sea of Galilee, where they could have some very violent storms at times, and it was so violent, they feared that they were going to perish. And if you remember, Jesus said, be still, and the water became like glass. But now he tests them when he's out of the boat. Because he's not always going to physically, literally be with them. And the Scripture promises that you will have trials. In the world, Jesus said in John 16, you will have tribulation. James wrote, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when, when you encounter various trials. Perhaps this morning you are in a storm, and it seems like the wind and the waves and the heartaches of life are so overwhelming to you that you don't know what's happening. But listen, if you've been walking with God, unless this is some storm of correction that you brought on yourself, he brought you into the storm. Now, there's a second assurance, a second anchor for your soul when you come into the trials of life. Not only will he bring me into the storm, he will help me grow because of the storm. He will help me to grow because of the storm. That was the whole purpose, to grow them in their faith. After all, a day would come when Jesus would ascend to heaven, and they would face many a storm in their lives, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, and they had to learn to walk by faith when he was not present. And God has a plan for each of us today. If you've been saved, it is to make you more like his son. Unlike Joel Olstein, who tells you his plan is to make you happy and healthy. He's a false prophet. He does not preach the gospel. So many are deceived by him. I warn you this morning of him. If you will just pull back the veneer and look at his theology, you will see it as false. He is preaching another Jesus, to use Paul's words. No wonder he has the biggest church in the United States. God's purpose is not to make you healthy and happy. It is to make you holy. It is to make you more like God's son. And some of you are here today and you're in the midst of like marriage problems. And you can't get along. And God wants to fix it. 
and He can fix it if you will yield to the Lordship of Christ as a believer and let Him begin to work the circumstances. Now, if you've never met the Lord, you've never come to a place of assurance, then you're going to be doing it in your own power. But when you are in Christ, you become a new creation, and then you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and He'll begin to change you from the inside out. But think for just a moment. When have some of us grown the most in our lives? In the midst of a trial. When things are tough. All of a sudden, one day I have a job and things are going good. The next day, I don't have a job. One day, I seem perfectly healthy. The next day, I discover I've got cancer. One day, the whole family's together. The next day, someone dies. And it's often in the midst of a storm where we are stretched and forced to seek the Lord. And he wants to use those storms so that even when there's not, quote, unquote, a storm, we will walk consistently with him. Someone wisely wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure, an anonymous author, we don't know. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wise for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. Isn't that true? That's exactly what God says in the Song of Solomon. Listen to these words. He wrote, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. Every man faces death, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Then he adds, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. In other words, he said, it is better to go to a house of mourning, to go to a funeral, so that if your heart is not right, you might get saved. And if your heart is right, if you've been saved, you might not waste your life because your end is the same. God has given you a breath like appears on a cold day, James says, and then it's gone. Faster than a weaver shuttle is your life. God wants you not only to be saved, but as a saved person, he wants you to invest your life. And by the way, that's why it's important that when some preacher does your funeral, A, he's a gospel-preaching pastor, and B, that he's got a casket with a real body down in front. Now, I'll do your funeral. People get all bent out of shape. Pastor, you tell me that I should be buried and not cremated. I'll do your funeral if you want to get yourself in some urn somewhere and put a little picture next to it. But God's way is burial. That's what the Scripture teaches now, it's not a problem in the resurrection whether you are cremated or burned in a fire or eaten by fish at sea, but God's way is burial, and he has a, way, a reason for that. When God does a funeral himself, God himself buries Moses. So if God set an example for us, it was burial, not cremation. In Scripture, the only people who cremate are outright pagans. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Joseph, Ananias, Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 15. Believers are buried. Why? I want to tell you, look, it's your last will and testament when you have your funeral. And if you have a gospel preaching pastor and you are right there in that box, it's going to resonate with some of your families. I see tears and broken hearts, and I've done over 500 funerals. Tears and broken hearts so often when there's a body present. 
but smiles when you've got the old urn. God has a purpose in it. You say it costs more money. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So it costs you a few thousand more bucks to get buried in this day. And by the way, it doesn't have to be as expensive as people make it. You don't need a $4,000 box. You can get a $600 box. They won't show it to you in the showroom, but you demand it or buy it through Costco for 600 bucks, and that's the box you can have. But listen, it will resonate with those people. And you've got some loved ones, some of you, you've been praying for your whole life. And they might get saved at your funeral, some of your friends, some of your family. Better to go to a house of mourning and to see the reality and the brevity of life than to be in a house of feasting and laughter and never really think about it. So God uses difficulties and trials and storms to grow us because it's part of his will. He brings me into the storm. He grows me through the storm, the third anchor. He is praying for me through the storm. He'll pray for me through the storm. What was Jesus doing up on that mountaintop? Well, verse 15 says, he went there to be alone in John's account which you would infer that he went there to speak and pray to his heavenly Father. But you don't have to infer that, though it would be a right conclusion, because Matthew and Mark spell it out for us, put out in the margin next to the verse, Matthew 14, 23. Let me read it to you. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself to pray. And it was evening. He was there alone. You say, what was he praying about? He was praying about these men out there in the boat. He was watching them. Also put out in the margin, Mark 6, 47 and 48. Let me read that to you. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars. He's seeing them. He's watching them. He is on the mountain. He is watching them. He is seeing them straining at the oars. For the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Up on that mountain, Jesus saw them rowing. He saw the clouds begin to boil. The winds begin to blow. The waves begin to rise. But he is praying for them. He's praying that their faith would not fail. And friend, he sees you today. If you know Jesus is your Savior, Romans 8.34 says, He continually makes intercession for you. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, if you are saved... He lives to pray for you. He saw the disciples. He saw their needs. He knew what was best for them, and he knows what's best for you, and he cares for you in the midst of that storm. You can say what that woman wrote who was the product of a rape. His eye is on the sparrow, and so I know that he watches me. Sometimes people will ask me to pray for them. And I want to, and I don't want to ever say, well, I'll pray for you, and then not do it. And so most of the time, what I'll do is, well, come on, we'll pray right now. And out in the hallway, many a week after church, I just pray with the person right there what it is they want me to pray for. And sometimes God will burden me to continue to pray for that need. 
Occasionally, someone comes up to me and they say, Pastor Carl, I pray for you every single day. You don't know what that means to me. When I went into the ministry in 1978, Ruth Prentice, who had been a missionary in China, who was driven out by the communists when Mao Zedong came in with the machine guns, and she said, Carl, I pray for your ministry every single day. I pray for you. And I have no doubt because of the prayers of Ruth Prentice that God allowed me to see hundreds of college students come to Christ, 50 plus who are in full-time ministry today just from the campus ministry. But I want to tell you something. There's someone who prays for you Every single day, every day, and his name is Yeshua. Listen, that someone would pray for me out of the seven and a half billion people on the earth every day is such an encouragement to my heart, but I am even more encouraged that I am on Jesus' prayer list. Look, and he just doesn't love us all. He loves us each one. He's got the hairs on your head numbered. He lives to make continual intercession for you. Jesus was watching them in the storm, but not just watching them. He was praying for them. He brings me into the storm. He will help me grow because of the storm. He is praying for me through the storm. Here's a fourth anchor. He will come to me in the storm. He'll come to me in the storm. Verse 17, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. It's not by accident that the Apostle John states the obvious, Jesus had not yet come to them. Why does he say that? Because he wants to get our attention. With that statement, he wants to make the contrast that he'll make in verse 20, when Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. Sometimes you may feel like in the midst of your storm, where is the Lord? You think sometimes in a hard time he's deserted you, but he'll never leave you nor forsake you. God said through Isaiah the prophet, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and though the, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, he may not appear to come at the time we think he should come, because he knows just the right time to come. These guys had been at the oars for six hours, but he doesn't come until the fourth watch, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Why didn't he come sooner? Because he wants to wait until their little boat is right in the middle of the lake. When they are exhausted, when all human resources are gone, he's testing their faith. He's developing their faith. And so why did he come walking on the sea? Why didn't he just instantly appear on the boat? Because one, he wanted to show his disciples the miraculous. He wanted to do another miracle that day. It's written in the parallel accounts. This is the occasion when Peter literally walks on the water. But he wants to underscore in the hearts of all these men that the very thing that they feared was only a staircase that brought him closer to them. And that's true for you and for I. The loss of a job, 
the death of a child, an illness, a surgery. Where's Jesus? He's right there. And he is orchestrating the circumstances to shape us, to mold us. They jumped to a false conclusion. They said it's a ghost. They were filled with fear, not with faith. They had forgotten him. Why did they forget? I mean, why weren't they thinking about Jesus? They should have been. And again, in the parallel account, we read in Mark chapter 6, then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. There's a fourth miracle. And they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They had seen him that day feed 5,000 heads of household. They had participated in the distribution of the food to those 20,000. And when it's all over, there are 12 baskets full, one for each apostle in front of their feet. But they missed it. Now, granted, they were not yet regenerated by the Spirit because the Spirit had not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. But God's timing was right in when Jesus came. Remember, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Remember when we studied the miracle of Lazarus being raised last April? And Jesus comes to these two broken-hearted women who cared for him, who fed him, who loved him and his disciples. And he says, I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. Seems insensitive. But it's not. Suppose he had gotten there four days earlier, and Lazarus is on his deathbed, and Jesus heals him instantly. You know what some would have concluded? Ah, oh, people recover from illnesses. And the leaders of Israel could have said, no miracle here. He just recovered. But he was dead for four days. And because of that, the Bible says many, many believed. Genesis 3.15, after Adam sins, God makes the promise of a Savior, but he waits 4,000 years, 40 centuries to fulfill it. And the Scripture says, in the fullness of time, Jesus steps out of heaven onto earth. He's never early. He's never late. He comes at just the right time. Let me give you one final anchor. He will see me through to the end of the storm. He brought me into the storm. He'll grow me because of the storm. He's praying for me through the storm. He'll come to me in the storm, but he'll see me through to the end of the storm. John 6, 21 reads, So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. When Jesus got into the boat, the other accounts tell us immediately the wind stopped, the seas were calmed, and John adds, instantly... They're on the other side of the lake. They go from the middle of the lake to the other side of the lake. Why? Because that was God's will. He sent them to go to the other side, not to go to the middle of the lake and drown, but to go to the other side. That was the plan. Someone said it, unknown author, the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. That's so true. The will of God will not take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. 
Jesus had told them to go to the other side, to go over, not to go under that day. Now, you may fail, I may fail along the way, but in the end, God will succeed because the one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so Matthew tells us when he gets into the boat and he stops the wind, they fall on their faces and they worship him. And they say, you are certainly God's son. Fast forward a year later. It's the day of Pentecost. No doubt, not by accident. But in the providence of God, 5,000 heads of household are saved, excluding women or children. And what happens immediately after that? A trial, a storm, persecution. Their lives are threatened. I can't help but think that they thought of this day when Jesus fed 20,000. On that day, he nourished and saved 20,000 on Pentecost. And just as a storm came, this storm came, and they saw God's faithfulness. And you know, because the Scripture records it, they took courage. I mean, why did Jesus walk in the water? For theatrics? Hey, everybody, look at me. No, 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 no. This is a Samuel. This is a miracle with a message. And it goes beyond the miracle itself. And he wants them to know what seemed like way over their head was under his sovereign providential feet. And someday he is coming back. And what took place on this day will look like child's play. Because he will step out of glory on the clouds of heaven. And he will come back with magnificence and power and glory. And every knee will bow and tongue will confess willingly or unwillingly that he is Lord. Listen, he brought you into the storm. He'll help you grow because of the storm. He's praying for you in the midst of the storm. He'll come and meet you while you're in that storm, and he'll see you all the way through the end. And what looks like is over your head, it's under his sovereign feet. Now, if you've never met him, you desperately need him. Not to make you happy or healthy, but to forgive you. Because your sin, like my sin, is an offense to Almighty God, and it warrants the wrath of God. But Jesus came to take that wrath for you. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for John, the revelator, who recorded the revelation that we've been studying, and thank you for giving us the gospel of John. Now, may we be people today who are not just hearers of the word, but those who are willing to obey and do. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who's never met Jesus. They have no assurance 100% that if this were their last day on earth, or if Jesus were to come, that they would go to heaven. And there's all kinds of ambiguity and doubt in their minds because they think they're not good enough. Father, reveal to them that they are not good enough and never can be. Help them to see that we are stained by sin forever without Jesus. 
that our sin warrants death, but help them to see that Jesus will wipe the stain eternally clean by the fact that he took the wages of sin death on his cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your death was not partial, but it was total, that you could shout from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. And you gave evidence and proof when you were raised from the dead. Help someone, Father, in simple faith to say, Jesus, I ask you today in faith because I know your word is true to save me. Now, Father, many, because they have told me they are in the midst of a turbulent storm and some are getting ready to walk into one they don't even know is there. But thank you that you have a purpose, that the hardships of life are not in vain for the child of God, that you have a purpose through them to make us and conform us into the image of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving meaning to life, even in the midst of deep, deep heartache. Thank you for the helper, the Spirit of God, who comes alongside and empowers us to walk through those trials. We give you praise and honor in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You may be in Gray, South Carolina. You may be in our Bluffton campus or in Graniteville or here. And there's a decision you need to make to confess Jesus as Lord. Maybe to be baptized symbolically as, as we just saw these a few, an hour or so ago. <laughs> Longer than that, maybe. <laughs> but you have a decision to make. And I want to invite you during this time of invitation to leave your seat. You may be a believer, but you need a church home. You know, every Christian, every born-again child of God is to be a member of a New Testament church. And some of you listening to me today, you're live streaming in some other state, some other country, and you're just a drifter. You've committed yourself nowhere. And maybe there's some like that here today. God's Word teaches that you are to attach yourself to a Bible-believing church. So as Matt leads us, we'll sing all these verses as an expression and reminder of the grace of God that carries us. If you have a decision, step out and meet me here in the front.